Jacob, I have a question for you today. <laughs> I'm still kind of thinking about it. <laughs> all righty. Well, first of all, I want to know how you how your week went because we just got off of a break and did you have any cray cray moments or was it pretty simple this week is everybody still kind of asleep this is not a good week (laughs) (laughs) there are these are the times that try men's souls Ochoa I just gotta tell you that Uh, I mean it I mean seriously like from the we had a work day and then we've been back in school after that. And literally from the Sunday before the work day, it just started bam, 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 bam. And it, I mean, it's wild. And what's funny is it's uh, um, it, it, it's just a bunch of issues that they weren't really held over. And they're, they're not even really preventable necessarily. It's just kind of principal territory that happens. And I was, I was just really shocked that I was like, what the heck? Why is this happening right now? Why, why is this the life? And so, um, it's really, I mean, it's, it really hasn't been all bad, but it, it's, it has been one of really intense going, what on earth is happening right now? And then a lot of really fun, you know, seeing the kids return and, um, you know, just, uh, being able to experience kind of that, that energy of, you know, kids walking around high school is funny because there's like, you know, all tired. Cause you know, they've either been working and staying up late and doing all that. And so the kids are, you know, getting back into things, but overall, I mean, it's been, it's been a, a solid week. I have been very tired because my sleep schedule got messed up. Matter of fact, I took a nap before jumping onto this, uh, like a 20 second or like a 20 minute nap. My wife and I are very good at those at these early days and semesters. We'll uh, we'll come home and each pass out on the couch watching YouTube or whatever, and then end up uh, waking up like 20 minutes later, getting up, making dinner, hanging out for a little bit. Then we don't go to bed until like 11 or 12. That's just our mm-hmm. lives. And then we wake up and do it all again. But um, it's been pretty good. Um, I'm, you know, I'm preparing for... Uh, some of my speaking that I'm doing coming up early February. I have a gig over there in Houston. No, not Houston, San Antonio. And then after San Antonio, a few days later, I'll be in Denton. Um, uh, one is the NCTLEA, something like that, um, mm-hmm. for the, the tech conference. The other one is uh, the NCTA um, uh, conference over there in Denton, pretty much all about rightfully empowered and workshop. So I've been, you know, planning that thing, planning our presentation that we have on January 7th that everyone should be signing up for as we speak. Um, and so there's just, there's just a lot of what time is that going to be? It's going to be 11 a.m. Central standard time. Be there, be square. Ocho. I'll start without you. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, it's just been one of those things. It's, it's, it's it's a wild experience to uh, to do what I do these days, and it's sometimes I sit back and I go, "What on earth is going on?" But it's been good. It's been it's been hectic. It's been challenging, but overall, I say net positive. Very good. Well, with that, everybody, it's craft and draft with uh, Pam Ochoa, Jacob Chastain over there, who's our principal on staff here, and he is. 
rocking and rolling in principal land. So go ahead and take it away, Jacob. What are we going to talk about? You know, sometimes <laughs> when you do your side of the intro, it sounds like you forget what our show is. I do. You're Not like, really. this is craft and <laughs> draft. draft, maybe, maybe draft. <laughs> uh, yes, well. ladies and gentlemen, today we're getting to a listener question that uh, was such a good question. We had to go off. And kind of dive into it and do some research. I know Ochoa, I think Ochoa got more research done than I did. So we'll probably bounce <laughs> off a lot of what she's been doing. But I felt I like know. she thought it was an interesting task. And I definitely thought it was going to be an interesting discussion. So um, we're going to dive into that. It's all about what does a robust reading and writing program look like for students through 6 through 12? So we're trying to talk curriculum on a big scale. Um, so we'll see where this one goes. Uh, but before we do that, I want to say that this show is completely funded by the listeners, AKA you. So, if you enjoy this show, whether it's your first episode, second episode, or 100th episode of listening to the craft, the draft podcast, you can support us by going over there to patreon.com slash craft and draft, or you can go to craft and and click the link at the top to where it'll take you straight to the Patreon. You can subscribe for exclusive content, AKA the listener tier or the listener plus tier listener tier gets you bonus episodes. We are up to, I think we're all about up to 10 bonus episodes and several training videos at the listener plus tier. It also gets you a bunch of perks such as having really direct contact with us, um, some inside baseball stuff and being a part of a workshop community that pretty much is all in line with the same philosophy. Also at the listener plus tier, you get access to our live training, such as the one on January 7th that you can go to regardless of if you're a Patreon listener or a Patreon subscriber or not in that training where we're talking about strategies to increase engagement in the reading and writing workshop. Probably going to go for hour, hour and a half of a presentation and then a Q&A afterwards, which we love to do since we're over there on Zoom. So guaranteed, probably at least two hours, probably more. We're going to record it whether you can be there or not. If you can't be there, still pay the entry fee and we will get the video to you afterwards like several of y'all did on our last one and we greatly appreciate you guys for doing that but come on down it'll be an awesome afternoon with pam and i and the craft and draft audience so thank you for that subscribe if you haven't done so already leave a review if you haven't done so already but i want to tell you that everyone who has supported this podcast are as follows. Alicia, Brandy, Leah, Mark, Amy, Rebecca, Courtney, Carol, Melissa, Destiny, Susan, Tracy, Hannah, Lori, and Jen. They keep this podcast going, and they're the reason why we are live right now. So, without further ado, let's get to the question. All righty. Miss Ochoa, I am going to read us... The question and the question goes as follows from our wonderful Patreon listener, Nalissa. She says, what would a robust reading and writing program for students in grades six to 12 look like? If we had the same students for all six years, how could we build on skills learned and offer more rigor and complexity within all genres as students grow? That's a whopper of a question. So it's not a small one. <laughs> well, and I, I don't even think it's one that's really been solved, right? Because if it had, no. that would be all over the place. Um, everyone would be doing it. But instead, we have a lot of curriculum teams. We have 
companies out there selling curriculum. Um, we have companies out there selling programs. We have districts writing curriculum with teachers and experts. We're rewriting curriculum in my district as we speak. They're going through the whole process. They're bringing in teachers and outside um, advisors for that. I have been a part of a few curriculum teams in our old district where you still are. Um, and it is a complicated process. We've, we've built curriculum from the ground up when we got new standards down here in Texas. That process was wild. I mean, literally just, I just remember sitting in this big room with all of these teachers and our content coordinator at the time. And we go, okay, first things first, let's define terms. And even that was challenging just to read standards and go, okay, so what does this really mean? What does this word really mean when it says such as, um, what, what are the nuances to that? And so this is not an easy thing. So what, what are your thoughts about lasting curriculum as you're wrestling with your cat who will not stay down? <laughs> the cat will not stay down. The cat must be wanting to be a reader. I, uh, yeah, I, th I think you're right. I think it's a, a problem that quite hasn't been solved. I think you've got different philosophies and different uh, viewpoints on it. Uh, some try to take a scientific approach to it, which is almost impossible in the sense that uh, each individual child that we're trying to teach to read has variables to it. So, there are so many variables out there. It's kind of hard to put a scientific, you know, a true scientific research experiment on it. And that's really what the research is showing me is that that we really probably need to do with what's practical uh, and not necessarily what some people are saying is scientific. Because when you start looking at that, you can't really have a control group. I don't even think it's ethical to have a control group uh, because you'd have to have a group not reading. And a group reading to see if any of your programs actually work. So you know, it'd be kind of interesting. I want to I want to hit on about. that for a second because you and I, I know, we were talking the other day, and you had mentioned mm -hmm. that, and I, I didn't bring it up then, but it's perfect for the podcast now, so I'll bring it up. So I, I had a academic coach at one point who was awesome, but wasn't on board with independent reading in the sense of mm -hmm. uh, what we are. All right, he he was not fully convinced that letting kids read for a chunk of time on their own was really valuable. And he challenged me one time. He said, okay, you believe it's valuable. I don't really see the evidence for that. He goes, let's do an experiment. One of your classes will keep this time and one will not. And we'll see if it, if it makes a difference. That'll be the only difference that we do. And so <clears throat> him and I debated this for, for a while and I almost did it. Um, but my, one of my, so before I get to the point you made, I had other issues because I was like, okay, so I like the idea of doing an experiment and kind of going through the process here at our campus. I think that's interesting, but the classes themselves were not leveled in a way that could do that. You would have to, you would have to illegally mm -hmm. group classes to do it properly mm -hmm. in a public school setting, um, mm -hmm. which you can't do. You can't group by, you know, all kids in one group by ability or whatever in a, in a whole class. And so you can't do that. Uh, 
we would have to check for um, background knowledge. You would have to check for access to literature at the home or who reads at home and who doesn't, because one group might not be reading in your class. But if every one of those kids is going home and reading, it doesn't really add up the same way Mm -hmm. necessarily. And then I got to the ethical question of, man, I just really don't see how it's ethical to not let kids read and not have access to reading time in a reading class. And so Mm -hmm. we, I, we ultimately didn't do it. Um, but it's interesting that you have kind of had the same thought process as you start digging into how do you even study what works? Yeah. And I mean, like, you know, where I was going with that, you talked about the silent sustained reading. And of course, that's been an issue. I've had principals that I've worked for that are like, why are they reading? We've talked about this on the podcast. Why are they reading in, in a reading class? And, you know, of course, my smart aleck response is why are they doing math in math class? I mean, I, I don't know. You tell me it's called reading class. And so that that's one of the biggest issues I think over the years um, that I've had, uh, you know, there's some other things that have come up within a reading program. Do you teach a whole novel? Do you not? We've talked about that uh, before. Do you, um, how much guided reading do you do? Is it okay for them to popcorn read or not popcorn read, which I'm not really into that, but I'm just saying these are just some of the issues that people have done and, have been disputed or argued about because, um, and so as a result, when you're sitting here and you're doing what you think is best as a teacher, and then you have somebody who may or may not be a reading teacher come in and say, well, what you're doing is wrong. And yet you've been doing it for a long time. Like when I say a long time, I'm talking about 20 plus years. And then they're saying, well, you're not doing it right. But yet I go back and look at my results and I've been very successful. I'm just talking about me personally. And I'm like, I'm not, you know, I mean, I've, I've allowed them to read. I've allowed them to talk about their reading. Uh, I allow a lot of choice. I give a lot of time. We've talked about that. Time is very important to me as far as like allowing students to actually explore the craft of reading and the craft of, of uh, writing and uh, all of those things. But then somebody comes in who may or may not know uh, English the way I do or reading the way I do. And then they come in and say, well, uh, your kids are reading too much, you know, be it a vice principal or a principal or a academic coach as what you were talking about. And you're like, how, how are they reading too much in reading? I mean, so I don't know. So now the question is, what would a robust reading and writing program for students look like? And you're thinking, well, when you look at everybody, there's so many different viewpoints that it's kind of hard to define. I can see why that would be a question teachers would be asking. I think, <clears throat> I mean, it's hard to even... I guess, think about where to start. Um, mm-hmm. But truthfully, I mean, you. Gotta, I think when you're dealing with something like this, you kind of just got to pick, right? You kind of yeah. have to just <laughs> look at something and go and then alter from there. But, you know, the I think the core of a solid program, regardless of where you are, and this is <clears throat> this is when I started thinking this way in my class, it helped. When I started thinking about this as a department, it helped. And, you know, thinking about it on a bigger scale, on a school wide scale, you know, as a principal, um, I haven't been there long enough to say if it's helped or not, but I assume it's going to, because it just, 
it's a certain perspective that I think has to be at the core of all of this, which is, is, are we building in time for kids to read and write that, that has to be an, an, at the, the fun, the foundation of any type of program, uh, and then we can, once you have that, then you can start going, okay, so how do you move to the next level? And here's the question. And here's the interesting question when I'm at the high school, because it seems to be there's, I wish I had Rita side next to me from Kelly Gallagher. Cause he has a great statistic that I should have wrote down, but he has a statistic that shows how, you know, each kind of, you know, big grade level move up. So elementary to middle school, middle school to high school, Mm -hmm. the love of reading goes down Mm -hmm. and the love of writing goes down. And so Mm -hmm. I've always said that middle school is where, you know, the joy of reading goes to die. And truthfully, if it dies in middle school, it gets incinerated at high schools to a degree (laughs) because it's, it's, you know, I've heard people talk about how, Oh, you know, reading time. Oh, that's that's very middle school or that's very elementary. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And they're talking about really that independent reading time. And it's it's interesting because I've heard that at middle school, too. Oh, that's very elementary that you mm-hmm. know kids are independently reading, like, drop everything and read. And so we've we've told well, I mean, this whole podcast is a documentation about how to combat those wrong views about what independent reading is and how to talk about it in a way that's a little bit more robust for people that don't really understand what that is. But if you don't have reading and writing practice at the core of any program, regardless of what it is, I I don't know. It's it's really hard for me to subscribe to it at all. Are you okay? <laughs> Are you okay? <laughs> I know my cats are fighting right over here at my feet. I don't know why they choose podcast time to fight. They don't fight at all until I'm on the podcast. (laughs) So I'm sorry for all the noise. I was trying to get them to stop. That's okay. (laughs) Can you hear that? I'm about to knock down my lamps. I can't hear anything. I mean, it's serious today. (laughs) (laughs) Now they're out of the room. They started chasing each other. Okay, maybe they won't come back. So foundations. Anyway, uh, what do you? Oh, I mean, do, do you agree? Reading and writing time is the foundation of a of a program. Oh yeah, and you know, I'm I'm uh, I'm the person who says, and I'm sure I've heard it from other people, but if reading and writing is what you want your students to do, then you do it on the first day of school. And I've always put in reading and writing on the first day of school to. Um, in some form or fashion, uh, we started right off the, the bat in um, uh, our first day back and the kids had to write. I mean, they were, I said, this is assignment. You're turning it in and they got to choose what, you know, the things that they wrote about. But basically um, what they didn't get to choose, of course, was their, I, I kind of guided it a little bit. In other words, I told them to create a character and so, but they got to choose how they went about it. And there's some other things that were in that particular assignment. But the whole point is, is they, they wrote and then we read 
uh, descriptions of characters to see kind of how how theirs paired up with somebody else's uh, one of their other books. So, I mean, you have reading and writing every day, and I do agree with you. I think it needs to be the core and the center, and I think it needs to, I, I really do go back to Nancy Atwell, and that is they need time to read. They need ownership, which is choice, choosing what to read or write. And then uh, they need to have a response uh, to their reading and writing. And that response uh, is either to respond to the reading or to get feedback about their reading, uh, whether it's self-feedback, peer feedback, or teacher feedback. Uh, I think those, to me, are the three main things that you need to make sure you have uh, no matter what. I, yeah. And you're, you always do so good at highlighting the feedback piece. I think it's, I think it's, it's so important. It's probably something we're going to talk about on January 7th a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, and truthfully, you know, it's the, I don't know, it, that it's just that time piece, right? Because that's what, that's what the, what curriculum inevitably does. And I've seen it in almost every curriculum, is it it there's so much in it that when you're trying to access it it's like when the heck do i do anything because it's it's all so packed and it's like all of this happen ha has to happen all at once and then you start talking to the people who wrote it right let's take let's take Fontes Impidel for instance that's a great example because i've seen them in person and i would say like 60% of the time they were speaking they were like qualifying or adding a lot of nuance to a lot of the claims that their work has has said people like or has told people what to do right in guided reading like they did a lot of talk about lexiles and or they don't use lexile they use their own like little thing but their whatever their their coding system is like they talked about that and you know they, they leveling spent a, yeah leveling they talked about how they spent a lot of time talking about how leveling has been taken out of context for all of these years you know basically trying to water down how they were at like the cornerstone of that um and and that and the just their products that have turned into money making machines really um there, I know Lucy Calkins. We, you and I, have you ever taught with her units of study? Uh, taught with them? No. What What we had to do when I became a trainer is we had to read all of that and we had to summarize it and then we had to present it. But no, I've not actually taught her actual units of study where you go and do her script and so all of that. No. There there, I mean, I know right now there's a lot of contention around Lucy Calkins, which we won't get into here, but just just that and of its own like little bubble. Um, you know, I've ta I've taught with people who, or I work with people now who have used Lucy Calkins uh, units of study, mm -hmm. and they they adored it. They said it was really a good scaffold for writing workshop and reading workshop, and it really did help them because it was so centered on workshop. But even they admitted that just the way something has to be designed to put so much in it, you have to start filtering out stuff, right? And so I think mm -hmm. if we're if you're ever in a position to build something, I don't know if there's any way around that uh, because you run the risk. I think it's I think people just decide that it's uh, easier or it's better to have more 
than less. You, because we've been in that situation where you and I have like looked at curriculum and gone, there's nothing here. Like, <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, if you're comfortable with your content and comfortable kind of creating your own resources and whatnot, that's, that's, that's nice. You know, I love that being in that mode of like, okay, I have my target. I know how to get there. At least I can figure it out. Um, but that that's challenging because when you're talking about, you know, raising up new teachers or teachers to that are new to content or teachers that are new to grade level, you know, you got to have something that guides them because, you know, you and I have also both seen brand new teams put together with brand new teachers that don't have a lot of resources mm-hmm. and it's, it's hard to move forward. So I would say first, and if we're talking about, you know, building something from six to 12, having time built in for reading and writing all the way up from six to 12, regardless, does it matter? It has to be there. And then second is have a guide and resources that would really kind of, that that is enough for people to kind of pick and choose from, but isn't so dogmatic that you can't break break away from it. And that way, there's some there's some nuance there and some power for the teacher. Now, I want to point. I want to go back to this question real quick because she talks about. She specifically says, Nalissa says, if we had the same students for all six years, how would you build on skills learned uh, and go from complexity? So for you, Ochoa, you're starting. Let's let's start small and then let's get big to kind of map that when it comes to what you're seeing in your classroom and what you've seen over the years, you're in a second semester. How, how are you approaching that? Because you've hit on you've probably hit on what how, how would you have what percentage of the standards would you say you've hit on by January 4th? I would say about. 80%. Right. So you're, you've done most of the standards, at least to some degree. So mm-hmm. now it really is kind of increasing complexity. And then obviously you have to tighten it up for testing and whatnot. So when you think through yeah. that process, what, what is it that you're really aiming for, uh, to, to move them to that next level? Cause they've already seen it. So how, how are you moving them forward? Well, I have to, uh, and I do want to answer your question, but I'm uh, a thought that's in my head, and it goes back to Jerome Bruner. And, of course, Jerome Bruner is the one who believes that you should have uh, a spiraling curriculum. He's the one that, so you spiral, so you add on and add on, and, and what you add on is exactly what's in her question, and that is rigor and complexity, abstractness. So you go from concrete to abstract, you go from um, using Bloom's taxonomy, if you will, uh, from the simple knowledge to understanding all the way to synthesis or evaluation. Of course, some people disagree on whether or not there's a synthesis at the top anymore than evaluation. It used to be uh, evaluation was at the top, I think. But um, but the whole thing is, is you've got to look at I would almost take a grid. If I were really doing this for another group of people, I would take a grid, if you will, and I would put it on a, I would have like a, an, a, an axis where you have concrete at the bottom and it goes to uh, abstractness at the top. Okay. And then I might have on the, on and then going from left to right, it might be, 
uh, simple to complex. And then I would build my lesson. So like so far, I've already like I would put what I've been doing in these slots, right? You know, kind of look at them that way. And then I would look to see, okay, are there any missing blanks? Is there anywhere where I have, I need to go back and pick up something that might be concrete and simple? Or do I need to make it a little more simple, but yet abstract, you know, and I would go through and I would look at each thing that I've done already and see how did my students do on it and what do I need to do to make it better? If I have a student that is gifted, then I probably need to move them to the more abstract and um, complex and with more rigor, you know, that little part of my quadrant. <clears throat> and the way I would do that is a lot of times would be with symbolism. I would add symbolism. I might add more uh, comparing and contrasting, uh, more coming up with their own conclusions about things. Uh, I would uh, maybe even build the rigor on on the on the reading that they're having to do. Uh, maybe complex uh, issues. Maybe more nonlinear plot type. Uh, readings, if it's story, uh, maybe working more with argument and maybe make those uh, multi-textual like you'd like to do, uh, that would probably be up there a little bit higher. And then my other students, I would look and see what I would need to do, you know, and they might, I just might need to add more, uh, you know, like maybe not make it abstract, make it more concrete, but make it a little more difficult as they go. And, uh, kind of reiterating theme or reiterating message purpose uh those types of things maybe mood tone and just kind of more on that understanding and application side so i would kind of look at that and see what i haven't done and figure out a way to uh spiral it so to speak and that's how i would do if it was sixth grade all the way up i would look at those core things how can i take that reading and what they're doing i would look at their you know, maybe they're um, the activities that I'm having them to do. I might uh, increase my time a little bit. I might blend it. But one thing that I think is really important, and, and I and I think this is probably uh, heart of my philosophy, and I think that everything needs to be in context. So if I'm so I like to use generalized questions or thematic approach. And so when you do a thematic or generalized question, when you do that, you can really spiral a lot easier uh, than you can if you just bank it on skills only. So I would change my focus and move it to a thematic approach and uh, maybe use generalizations to help me. And then each year I would maybe add a different generalization. Uh, what I mean by generalization would be challenge, change, power, those types of things are are good words to use to help you do that. Well, and as you, I had so many ideas while you were talking, but oh, I'm sorry. No, it's good. I um, mean, to give you ideas. <clears throat> yeah, <laughs> I should, I really don't need anymore. Um, they're really just a nuisance at this point. But the, uh, you know, uh, there's a piece of this that is, you know, curriculum. When you're talking about curriculum that's going out through, I know we were talking about your classroom, and I'll get back to that in just a second. But when you're talking about just moving in complexity, 
a lot of it also has to do, it's not just skills. Like you said, it is moving into deeper concepts, deeper ideas, deeper emotions, more nuanced opinions. And a lot of that just comes with age, right? This is, this is why, you know, some of our kids in middle school, it can be really complex to teach them with middle school curriculum because, or without, uh, with with a rigid curriculum, what you lose is the ability to really help that GT kid who might be really advanced and need something a little bit more advanced. But because you're so lockstep in something, you don't have any recourse to help that kid. You know, they're still busy reading uh, the hatchet or something when they need to go to uh, a deeper level of something. And so there's it, there has to be this freedom and this this flexibility within any curriculum whether that is in your class or something that's going on bigger so i wanted to say that first is that just the maturity of the your age level is going to affect this and you have to kind of adapt you know i'm i'm still shocked that you know they're they're like you know from sixth grade to eighth grade from sixth grade to eleventh grade sixth grade to twelfth grade you can still see evidence of just really it's like have like writing essays about like, you know, you like arguing for like your favorite piece of technology. Like that's OK. That's fine. But there's really not a that's not mature enough. Like you, you know, I, I we were able to hit on so many great themes um, throughout our work with middle schoolers. And I mean, truthfully, and to get back to the classroom setting, you know, rightfully empowered, but the, the work that I did with those kids over that time, this was my challenge taking these sixth graders and then moving to seventh grade. I said this all the time to you and our partner. I said, Holy mm-hmm. crap. I was like, all my tricks are kind of gone because I used them all. <laughs> right. I had taught sixth grade for what, five years in a row. And I had, you know, I had kind of I didn't use I didn't use the same thing every year, but I had a cadence. I knew I knew like I had some whoppers that I like, could really, you know, shock them into engagement, you know, just a, a unique poem, a unique video. Um, but by the end of sixth grade, I'd already used all of it or at least most of it. Um, and so seventh grade comes along and I'm like, ah, crap, you know, especially cause I'd use a lot of Linda Reeves quick rights in that quick rights book. And I was like, well, I can't use this resource as much. Um, <laughs> and so what I did though, is I did tons and tons and tons of listening to where they were. And I actively sought out themes, ideas, emotions, that connected to them so I could get them on that, that emotional level to get that investment. And then as we thought through it and had conversations and wrote in response and wrote with models, I started going, okay, so here, here, now we're here. I see where we are. And so I started upping that where I would show where maybe in sixth grade, um, I had a lot of fun showing poems that, you know, we're, we're very, there wasn't a lot of, um, just like really strict poetry, just poetry that was really open-ended and whatnot. And you can see a lot of evidence for that. Now my dog's in here. You can see a lot of <laughs> evidence for, uh, that in rightfully empowered of just kids writing in that way. Um, 
But in, also in Rightfully Empowered, you see evidence of the kids when they started getting more advanced and really started doing some interesting things with poetry. And that really happened in seventh grade because I started showing them poems that were a little bit more aggressive in their structure. They used a little bit different language. They had a bigger command of vocabulary. And so you had um, this 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 elevation and so ideally that would have continued if i would have kept them again which i kind of did through slam poetry but not really because i wasn't really teaching them that was more of a you know just kind of helping them through their writing in eighth grade if i would have really had them in class again it would have i would have dove even more into that process because i know at the high school level they're going to start analyzing you know more antiquated literature they're going to start going Mm -hmm. into more of the the canon so to speak And because of that, and because a lot of those kids were on track for AP classes, which means they have to be on track for AP uh, literature and they have to be on track for college board stuff to get ready for that whole process. You know, there there is a a raising of the bar, um, so to speak. But I, I feel like you just hit on one of the biggest points here is it's it's a lot less when we think about increasing complexity over time, it isn't just, oh, this is more difficult. Difficulty isn't the only sign of complexity. And right. I and I think your picture books um, are the the most shining example of that because you there there are some amazingly complex uh, picture books that are not difficult to read. They're not difficult things to interact with. And yet they are very deep and very nuanced and have very rich themes. And so I think that is a trap that for anyone interested in this stuff, I think that's a trap that you just have to be mindful of. And I think a lot of curriculums aren't. So they're like, Oh, well this poem's hard. (laughs) Let's put that in the 10th grade curriculum or this. Oh yeah, this is long. So I'm going to add that to the reading list, this short story. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like you've seen that and it's existed. And so I don't know what, what's your, what's your thought on that, that the, in terms of just managing that balance of, complexity versus difficulty. Well, I mean, I think that's the danger and people just basing an entire, uh, you mentioned Lexile levels earlier. I think that's a danger of basing everything on a Lexile level only because um, you can take like mice and men and it might not be written at a high Lexile level, but let me tell you, that's complex when it comes to, uh, the themes that are involved in that, um, uh, themes that are mature and themes that are hard to deal with. I mean, it's hard to face reality in the face and and look at what man is like and and see how complex we are and all of that. So to me, you can have simple sentence structures, but yet you could have a whole lot packed into that. I mean, just take Carlos Williams, the red wheelbarrow. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing more simple than that. There's nothing more simple than that. But I tell you what, my kids have in the past, and uh, I try to hit it every year. I think uh, I got the idea from Nancy Atwell because she uses it to teach uh, in her kids, you know, uh, 
to begin poetry with. And so the thing is, is there's so much packed in just a few words. That's why poetry is so, uh, it might look simple, but when you really get into it, it, it's words have more than one meaning to them. There's more than one way to write something. And so when you're looking at, um, at complexity, that doesn't necessarily mean harder words or more difficult sentence structure. But I think sometimes we get confused because Lexile level is based on what uh, words and sentence structure. And when you're looking at that, I mean, some of those picture books, um, like the Velveteen Rabbit is a picture book. But let me tell you, I, I, I bet we could put the, I have not put the Lexile level on that, but I would not be surprised if that's got a pretty high Lexile level and yet it's a children's book. Uh, so I just think, but I've not ever looked at it like that before. That just popped up right now, but I just love the language in that in that particular book, and uh, I like to use it to show students how to write in a way that you know that flows and and um, I just like the word choice and all of that. Velveteen Rabbit, one thousand one hundred and ten. Yeah, for a picture book. I mean, really, that's pretty high, isn't it? That's definitely high. Yeah. I mean, it's not 1,200, but it's not low. You're not looking at 700. That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, and... But that that also goes uh, to show you why Lex High Level is such a... It's yeah. such a... It's such a... Uh, uh, it, what was the word I'm looking for? It's not It's not wrong. It's. It's. It's almost like a... It's a false mis it's a misrepresentation of what complex text is because of how it's presented. Lexile yes. is presented in most contexts um, as something that shows you how difficult a book is, but that's not what Lexile is. Lexile tells you about words and sentence length. And yeah, I mean but, it yeah. And so, I mean, we've we've said this before, though, the giver and the outsiders are pretty close in Lexile, but the the cognitive uh, synthesis that has to happen to really understand the giver is a lot different than the outsiders. The outsiders is a great book. There's some great themes, as we've talked about on this podcast before. But the mm -hmm. giver is really on another level in terms of just the complexity of ideas and themes. Well, yeah, and you're dealing with symbolism and the way she deals with color and yeah. how the absence of color and and she builds a whole whole entire world that if you've never done that in that dystopia, I mean, that's that's a an abstract concept because it's not a world that we live in. And so when you're looking at that, you're you're that I think that's why we like to use dystopias and things like that a lot, because it does create a more complex situation. Um, but anyway, yeah. So you were showing me a resource about reading ladders. Yeah. I just noticed that. And that's, I like reading ladders. So this is, so reading ladders is from the late Terry Lassane, who I had the privilege of having on mm -hmm. Teach Me Teacher years ago. She passed away um, a year or so ago, might be two years Aww, by now. I did not realize that. Um, and her, so her last published book was the one that just came out with Donalyn Miller. She didn't get to see it published. Um, it's very emotional. If you ever want a good cry, just go listen to like part two of my last conversation with Donald uh, Miller. With, with Donald Miller, yeah. she, you know, she just she just cries. I guess whole, I haven't looked at that the, one the mm -hmm. whole time. But it's it's an amazing book. But Reading Ladders came out before that, and it's it really is an incredible resource for anyone who's interested mm -hmm. in this because I think it gives you 
Ter- one, Terry Lassane is an incredible human being, and she did so much mm-hmm. for. She was anti censorship. She was she was always about amazing, you know, putting amazing books in kids' hands. She had trained probably ninety five percent of the librarians in Texas in her time. She was the the librarian who was it our campus where you are Ochoa before she retired. Mm-hmm. She was trained under her at, at the, the college that she went to. And so that was my first interactions with her. So really an incredible okay. human being. She has some incredible research, some incredible articles out there, but reading ladders really is this whole idea of, okay, I just finished twilight. What next? And right. it's, and it's, it, it does, it offers, you know, I'll just read like the little bullet points because it really is true. It talks about how the book helps you select books to create your own reading ladders for kids, build a classroom library that supports every student's needs, use reading ladders to bolster content area knowledge and build independence and assess where students are at and how far they've climbed. I mean, that like if anyone is interested in that, especially uh, Nalissa, you know, if you haven't read that, Nalissa, I, I highly recommend it. And just talking about it makes me want to go back into it because I've read it in a long time. But mm-hmm. um, it it really enforced that idea of, you know, kind of being a book dealer, but doing it with with purpose, not just and here. And this is going back to the whole conversation we always have about the difference between reading and kind of reading workshop, right? Because we, there's all, there should always be time to just read whatever you want, hang out, do whatever you want. But we're doing in classes a little bit more nuanced than that, right? That's why we confer with kids because we're, we're looking for that growth. We're looking to move them through their choice and through their independent reading, but there is still a purpose, right? We talk about that in writing all the time. There's a difference between free writing and writing workshop, Writing workshop has a purpose. Free writing is just kind of enjoying your time, doing whatever you want to do. Both are good, but in a classroom setting, you want to lean more to the academic side for obvious reasons. And so what this book does and what this, what her ideas in this book do, do is it, it really just helps this idea of moving with complexity with purpose. So even though you always want to be there kind of with the next book for your kids and be able to recommend the next thing, being able to do that consciously moving into greater complexity, I think is the strength. So, I mean, so if we're talking about what does a program need from six to 12, how about training and resources for educators to have to not only be able to go in and learn about all the different books and to have training that are focused on books and literature, both nonfiction, fiction, poetry, all of it. So educators are in, they treat reading and gathering that information for students as professional development, but also the resources to have to do this in a way that makes sense. I mean, you think about hundreds, I mean, literally thousands and thousands of kids, if you're going from six to 12, right, you have to have an amazing amount of resources at fingertips touch in order to move kids in complexity. If we really want to do it in a way that is as complex as the kids that we get in, right? Because going back to one of my original points on this episode, which is Rigid curriculum does not serve every kid. It might look nice. It might sound nice. Well, we read this book in fifth grade. We read this book in seventh grade. We read this book in 10th grade. High schools still do it that way, right? They're like the Odyssey 
in Romeo and Juliet and freshman, right? And then <laughs> and they go, and it just kind of keeps going um, from there. But really, what we need is, okay, so this range of books for this grade level, this range of books for this grade level, and then go from there and really explore. And so resources and actual time for teachers to do this work because um, the fact of the matter is teachers are busy. They have home lives. Not every teacher goes home and reads tons. I've, I've worked with teachers who outread me. I mean, I, I'm a very slow reader. I've said that in a bunch of different places. I don't read books very fast. Um, uh, I just, I enjoy my time. And so I can't really power through them, but I've, I've worked with people who can read like a book a day, especially if they're, you know, mid grade or YA books or a book a week. And that's intense. And a lot of people don't have that time. But if you built it into PD, hey, guys, we're going to come to our PD session. We're going to have a bunch of books for you to select, peruse. You can read them. You can jot down notes. And then afterwards, y'all are going to share so you don't have to worry about reading everything because there's going to be a 100 teachers here that are going to share out saying, oh, I think this book would go good for this book. So have a whole PD around the idea of reading ladders and reading complexity. And so you have teachers sharing all of these ideas and then they go, you know what? That I know I really trust that person. They said this book is really good for someone who likes this. So guess what I'm going to do when I go to recommend this? I can book talk it a little bit and say, hey, I haven't read this, but I have some really good friends who've read this. And they say it's amazing for that. Imagine if that was PD. If you just had all of these books, people were reading together for four hours and you shared and talked about how all of these connect. I mean, that that, that makes me excited. I want to do that now. You're muted, Miss Ochoa. Granddaughter had come in and <laughs> and I'm like, oh no, don't don't. She was upset. I think she might be sleepwalking because she's usually asleep. And she comes in, she stares at me, and then she looks kind of whatever, rubs her face and starts crying and walks out. So I think she's sleepwalking. <laughs> Bless her heart. But anyway, um, yeah, I think that's a great idea. I mean, because um yeah, I, first of all, I've never done that. I mean, we've never been able to, uh, you know, have a professional development that sounds like that. But how often is it that I go, Jacob, have you read this book? I mean, like, you know, because remember, I was out for a little while out of the classroom yep. and I was busy helping teachers, but I helped all subjects, not just English and, and reading. And so I knew all the books I you know, Al Capone does the shirts. I mean, I knew all the older ones, but I didn't know all the new ones coming in because I hadn't didn't realize I was going to be back in the classroom. So, but if we would have had a, you know, a cohort of teachers that would put together and another thing and, and talk like you suggested, another thing is an annotated bibliography. We used to, uh, if teachers could go together, we I, I have done this before. We did this way back when in the 90s for us and it's somewhere or it's one of those resources that have been thrown away from one administration to another you know how they throw everything out and they start over i don't know why we do that but we do but what we did is we kept an annotated bibliography so every time we read a book we would write about it so it's that same way of sharing and then now that would be so much easier you could do like a google form or you could do um you know some sort of uh Google Doc where your whole entire district has this 
place where you do an annotated bibliography. You put it up there, you do a little blurb, uh, maybe a little comment on what kind of lesson. That's what we did is we did a blurb about the book and then we did a lesson that we did with that book, how that book would work in different types of lessons, how it'd work with inferencing or how they used it with tone or mood or whatever. And so if you could do that, that, that you know, that sharing, but you would also record it, well, that would really be a resource, wouldn't it? Yeah. I mean, and that's where I think is truthfully where curriculum designers, curriculum coordinators should be, <clears throat> sorry, should be aiming um, is really finding these ways for people to interact like this, for to have teachers to build these resources. But I mean, how often are like we have these PDs and not against any tech people because they're amazing and they, they do help, but you go to the, they'll have these PDs and you go to a, a tech session and it's like 20 tech apps you should know about. And it's like, okay, like, you know what I mean? And it's very, mm-hmm. it's very, uh, surface level stuff. And it doesn't get to the real work of, of what we're talking about here. And I don't know why that is, I guess. I mean, it's probably for the same reasons that people don't do things like that in the classroom. They're afraid of time. Things have to get done. We got to talk about testing. We got to talk about this, but it's just, I don't know. I I think that's just where I think I get frustrated and why a lot of teachers get frustrated with professional development because it's just... Quite frankly, after a while, it all becomes the same, right? And it doesn't mean that it's right. bad, right? I mean, you and I have sat in trainings that we've heard a thousand times, but we still enjoyed because it was done well. Um, but it's it's not really to that next level. So if we're talking about, you know, Melissa's question about how do you do this, I think we can't forget that PD piece, right? It's mm-hmm. not just about moving kids through stuff. It's also about just having the the knowledge and the professional development to move forward as a professional, because you're like, you've said this before. I think, I don't know if you said this in private <laughs> or if you've said it on the podcast, but you made a comment the other day where you said, the more I do this, the more I feel like I don't know. And, oh yeah. That was, we were talking. Yeah. And that, and I, I feel the same way. You know, there's times where like, that that's the hardest part about writing or doing a podcast. Honestly, mm-hmm. I mean, that, honestly, I like the way we do this because we don't ever jump on here saying, you know, we're the be all end all. It's a lot of these episodes are us just kind of thinking through things. Um, and it's been very useful. Same thing for teach me teacher is just having great conversations and, and learning as we go. But it, it's hard to speak on certain things sometimes because it, there there's just so much that I don't know. Like I, you know, like I, there's a big gap in my knowledge about early literacy. Um, Mm -hmm. and there's, I have a funny story. So we went to a principal training where they were talking about some of this stuff and, you know, I was with my, you know, new principals and they haven't worked with me for very long, but they always, you know, I'm the guy, you know, I've, I've written things and had a podcast, all this stuff. So they, they make their little jokes 
as they do, but they, um, <laughs> you know, d- just teasing and stuff. But we did, they, they were like our, our ELA coordinator stood up and she was, they did like this little pop quiz and I don't remember the questions, but they were, they were really inside baseball stuff about reading, right? Like stuff about pho- oh. phonemes and you know, all that stuff. Yeah. Phonemes and queuing systems. And, and I was like, I know this stuff because one, I had, I had to know it for, uh, you know, my content tests and stuff, but it's not stuff I interact with all the time because it's not something that you're really aiming for at the, the middle school or high school level. So, um, they would, they were making fun of me cause I got, I got several questions wrong and they're like, Chastain's a fraud. He's a fraud. <laughs> he, he wrote a book. And he has no idea what he's talking about. Like, first of all, it was a writing book. <laughs> <laughs> Second yeah, of all, I have it, never written a reading book. Anyway, go ahead. How funny. No, but that is the thing about reading is is when you're looking at it and you're looking at the early, I mean, God bless these um, people who actually start teaching students to read from scratch. I mean, that's, we're not doing that at sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. We're not, I mean, there's a few that feel like they are from scratch, you know, because they're, you know, they, they've got some issues. Um, due to various reasons, but, but when you are, are doing that from scratch, I mean, you need to, you have to have a lot of repetition. Uh, you have to have, like you said, the, the phonics and the sound systems and, you know, you got to do the, what is it? The coding and decoding and, you know, all of those things. And, And I think, I think when you're building a program, I think you do need to consider that early literacy piece as you brought it up, because sometimes some of our students really are, especially if they're like a a special ed type student or something like that. And they have some difficulties. You do need to have those pieces for dyslexia and for early literacy and things like that in there for word work. I think you need to have a strong vocabulary. The only thing that, you know, you need to have that kind of stuff in your program. So you gotta, you gotta do that as well. But the thing about vocabulary, I think it's very important that you have that. But I think every bit of this, it just works better when it's within context. I just think that whatever you do, uh, putting it in context is what makes a difference. Because we were talking about some of the things that are you were talking about in curriculum that people are adding all these different things in curriculum. And it's hard to express that, you know, you're talking about fonts, but now, you know, they're busy going, no, 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 that's not what we, that's not exactly what I meant when I wrote it that way. But what we really need to do is do it in a workshop format. It needs to flow. It's got to do all this. Well, that's hard to write. Uh, for people to not misunderstand it, especially if they don't have any background knowledge of workshop or how to put things within context of each other. And so, but I do think that uh, doing it in context uh, is very important. And I was talking to somebody the other day about how we're told that we have to do all of these different things in our classrooms. And I think this is across the board. I don't think it's just in my particular situation. But, you know, you have to do vocabulary, you have to do grammar, you have to do this, you have to do that, you have to do this, you have to put this on the wall, you have to do that, make sure you have that, make sure. And by the time you're making sure all of these things, and then, oh, don't forget that new computer program that we're now, we bought and you have to do too. I mean, you're looking at a lot of stuff, nothing's being taken off the plate. Everything is being added onto the plate. But the thing is, the problem that I have with it, I've really thought about this, that is, all of these things are presented to us as isolated skills. 
vocabulary is being treated in an isolated environment where, you, okay, five minutes of vocabulary. All right, now move to the next thing. Now move to the next thing. Now let's do stations. Well, you know, if you're doing stations, I'm not against stations, but if they don't flow in some sort of thematic way, it doesn't make sense. It's just isolated skills. And we're expecting our students to actually make the transfer without putting it together in context. So I think if you're going to have a robust reading program, I do really truly believe that all of it, the reading and the writing, all of that goes together, weaves together, but I think it needs to be within the context of each other. So when you're doing vocabulary, the vocabulary has got to be something they're about to read or use. They've got to be able to do it. They've got to have a need to learn it. Um, you know, when I did the red wheelbarrow, uh, when he put the word upon all on a line all by itself, that's a preposition. Why was a preposition doesn't seem to be a big word. Why does it deserve a line all by itself? Well, now I have a reason to teach prepositions. It's got to be within context is what I mean by in, you know, in spelling and all of that. Everything has to be within context. I just think it does and needs to come up naturally. And to me, that's important. Yeah. And that's, I feel like you know, we know vocabulary instruction is good. We know explicit reading instruction is good. No explicit writing instruction is good. That has to be coupled with independent time to interact with these things. Mm -hmm. So, you know, <clears throat> I know we're at an hour. This might be worthy of a part two. Um, I guess we can <laughs> wait and see if people uh, want more. But kind of the last thing I wanted to say is just, just piggybacking off what you said, which was, you know, I don't think if you're talking about a system that needs to go from six to 12, I don't think the format has to stay the same. I, I especially if mm -hmm. you're talking about like a school system, because, and I, you know, there was a time in my life where I was like, everyone should teach like me. <laughs> <laughs> I tried, but that's, it, it was an ignorant thought born of just being young and, and not uh, educated. But, mm -hmm. you know, now, you know, I've, I've seen a lot and I see a lot of teachers, you know, I've seen very effective teachers do things that I would never do um, and, and teach in a way that I necessarily wouldn't teach something. But their kids show tons of growth and it's hard to argue when that happens. Right. So what I wanted to put there was rather than... Uh, saying everything has to be done this certain way. I think what absolutely has to be, and this is really the last point I want to make on this is okay. quality assessment that is not high stakes because so quality assessment that's not high stakes, but is measurable across teachers. And so the reason I say that is because you got to have comparison data um, it's really good to see your own move forward and to track that. But if you're only seeing yours, there's you have no context for what that looks like at that age group for sixth graders, for seventh graders, for eighth graders, for 10th graders. And so I think that is an undeniable piece that has to be there. Now, do I think it needs to look like what standardized testing? No, I think there's we can we can be smarter about assessment. We're talking dream curriculum. We could really talk about how to dive down that rabbit hole and talk about what would we change about assessment to get there. But I, I think that has to be there. I think there's because of the way the system's set up now, it does lend itself to a little, you know, 
standardization, so to speak. Um, and I think there's a place for that, but there, there has to be that assessment piece. If you're not measuring progress over time, then there's no way to know where you're really going and going off your feelings really doesn't help. The, the, the reason data is good is because data, data takes the feeling away from it. And sometimes that hurts, but oftentimes it's, it's, it's great. And it it gives you a point of reference. So that, that, that's kind of my, my capstone on an infinitely long discussion. Do you have anything last words before we close out? No, but I am glad you brought up assessment. Um, and I just, again, go back to choice and time and ownership and response. I just think it's very important. Well, Nalissa, we hope we did <laughs> your question justice. We were we we weren't afraid afraid of it, but we knew it was going to be a whopper. We did an hour and two, and I feel like we barely scratched the surface <laughs> of everything that needed to be in here. So you let us know did we did we go on the right path? Do you want us to continue down this for a part two? I don't know. You reach out to us. Let us know. Subscribe if you haven't already, ladies and gentlemen. But more importantly, sign up for the January seventh training. 11 a.m. Central Standard Time, talking about strategies to keep kids engaged in reading and writing workshop and to increase their engagement with the Q&A afterwards. Sure to be a great time. Listener plus people, you guys will get your links here towards uh, probably about when this is dropping, which will be Friday. We'll probably be sending out that link for you guys so that y'all have access and that everyone else, whether you are going through Zoom or getting your access somewhere else, do that. If you want to sign up, go through the Venmos, $25 for people that are not Patreon supporters. Do so. We'll get you in Venmo and then we will get the links to you. And like I said, if you pay, you get access even if you are not there. But we would love for you to be there so we can interact, have some great questions and have a good time. But we will see who all shows up. We're excited about it. As of you hearing this, the training's tomorrow. So we will see you all tomorrow. But regardless, if you're there, know that we are here for you.